Welcome to Pineland Underground, the official podcast of the United States Army's John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School and the best podcast in the military. Bold, real, and unrestricted. Support the resistance by liking and subscribing on whatever outlet you listen to us on. This helps us expand our listenership and welcome to Pineland Underground. All right, welcome back to another episode of Pineland Underground. Good morning, Bobby. Hey, what's going on, Chuck? We're here. This is a little bit different intro. We're about to go into an episode that has the SWIC command team. It's going to outline their their new plan, um, which is pretty cool. And the reason this is different, I'll hand it over to Bobby for that explanation. Yeah, so if you've noticed, Pineland Underground is starting a new season. So we've been a little quiet over the spring and summertime, and we're about to launch season three of our official podcast from the Special Warfare Center and School. What we're doing is we brought in a few new hosts, which we'll introduce over the next few weeks. But as Chuck Ritter and I are moving on to new positions, this gives us the opportunity to continue on, make sure that the team is set up for success, and help continue a great audience that we have within Pineland Underground. Yep. So I just went through some surgeries. I'm about to retire. Old Bobby Tuttle over here is moving up to a, a higher position to where he'll still have influence over the podcast, but he just won't be on it. I, I know Chuck's actually thoroughly disappointed that I wasn't fired over the past year or the 18 months we got to work together. But no, I'm uh, moving over to a new position as the Director of Outreach and Strategic Communications for the Special Warfare Center. This gives us the opportunity to bring on some new hosts, some new talent, and continue what we're doing, though, and really allow other individuals to carry that torch for Pineland Underground. Yeah, we got some talent. I mean, I think they're probably better than we are, so we'll see. I'm pretty hyped about it, and I'm pretty excited to see what happens in Season 3. Yeah, Season 3 is going to be great. But this is awesome. We really want to thank everybody for your listenership, subscribing, and really the content, the great feedback we've received over the past season. This is great for us. Chuck and I have had a blast. And again, this will launch Season 3 of Pineland Underground. And you're not done with us yet. You're still going to hear us run our our yaps for (laughs) another couple episodes, and then we'll be over. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the episode of Special Warfare Center and School 2030 Transformation. Hey, welcome back to Pineland Underground. This episode kicks off Season 3 of our renowned podcast from the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. I'm one of your hosts, Major Bobby Tuttle, and with me today, I have one of our newest hosts who's joining the team, Sergeant Major Derek Riley. Derek, welcome to the team, man. Thanks. Uh, one, I, I appreciate being part of the team, being investment here, and uh, being part of the awesome Pineland Underground podcast. Uh, big shoes to fill with the team. Hopefully I can represent the community well. Uh, just a little bit about myself. Uh, served 15 years in Army Special Operations, Civil Affairs Senior Listed Leader by trade, working out of the 95th for that time under the ESOC umbrella doing multiple deployments to uh, a bunch of AOR. So just a little bit about myself. Obviously, continue to host and team will get to know me as I continue to uh, work through this podcast. No, I love it. Again, Derek, welcome to the team. Uh, really bringing that non-commissioned officer aspect to our fantastic podcast we have here. Uh, we've got great content coming out this fall. Uh, phenomenal episode coming out today. But before we get into that, I wanted to put two quick plugs. The John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School, uh, we've revamped and reinitiated our Special Warfare magazine. Uh, it's digital platform. You can find our new magazine at swcs or swick.mil. 
But the most recent episode we released focused on the history, lineage of our great training institution and more to come on Special Warfare Magazine. But we'll have our next episode coming out here in October about where the institution is headed. Another plug coming up as well is our regular warfare forum coming up the first week in December. This is going to be in Washington, D.C., bringing together thought leaders and stakeholders talking a regular warfare, what it is, where we're going with it. You can find out more on our website. Again, that's swcs.mil, and that's the regular warfare forum coming up first week of December. All right, kicking off today, we have a phenomenal group here inside our podcast studio. We have the command team from the Special Warfare Center and School. First, we have Brigadier General Will Beaupere, commander of our Army Special Operations Center and School. General Beaupere has had the honor of commanding our nation's best soldiers at every level within Army Special Operations, starting at the Special Forces Detachment Alpha, or SFODA, and leading at the group and brigade levels. His command and staff assignments include tours with 1st and 10th Group and engaging with allies and partners from Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. He's deployed in support of multiple named operations and most recently served as the Deputy Commanding General for Operations at Army Space and Missile Defense Command, and before that, as the Commanding General for Special Operations Joint Task Force Inherent Resolve. General Beaupere has been here for about 12 months as our commander of the Special Operations Center and School. Sir, welcome to the show. Bobby, Derek, awesome to be with you today. Really appreciate the opportunity. Love that. Sir, back over to Derek. Uh, next, we want to introduce uh, Command Sergeant Major Lee Strong. Command Sergeant Major Strong has extensive experience leading soldiers from 1st Special Forces Group, 3rd Special Forces Group, and 7th Special Forces Group. He served at every echelon from SFODA Team Sergeant up through Command Sergeant Major. Multiple of operational experience and deployments across Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and South America. So I want to welcome Command Sergeant Major Lee Strong to the team. Thanks. Happy to have you here, Sergeant Major. And last but not least, we have Command Chief Warrant Officer 5, Gary Ostrander, who's the incoming Special Warfare Center and School Commanding Chief Warrant Officer. Chief Ostrander is joining the command team, having most recently served in 2nd Special Warfare Training Group, focused on forging our advanced skills and adaptive problem solvers for the force. He served most of his time within 10th Special Forces Group in Colorado, but has an extensive number of deployments under his belt across Europe, Africa, as well as combat deployments in the Middle East. He also had time at 1st Special Forces Command, along with NATO SOF headquarters in Belgium. Welcome to the team, Chief. Sir, thanks. Derek, appreciate it. Gentlemen, happy to have you down here in the studio. It's going to be a great episode. Lots of really good topics we're going to dive into on the Special Warfare Center and School, and also where we're headed with the Center and School. Over to Derek. So, you know, the command team, you guys have an extremely busy schedule, sir, CSM, Chief. You guys just came back from uh, Leavenworth a week there, but you know, your day-to-day goes way more into that. So just, you know, starting with CSM Strong, talk about the day-to-day life that you kind of live as the command senior enlisted leader of the Special Warfare Center in school. Hey, uh, thanks, Derek. Can I tell that through a story? Just walk you through a yeah, day in the life? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Let's do it. First, I'll start with, you know, as a SFNCO, we're programmed to, like, almost avoid coming to be an instructor here at SWIC, right? So I avoided it as long as you possibly could because the first time I've been here at SWIC is now as the CSM, right? I regret that decision because huge opportunity and um, just very, very fulfilling. Uh, so my day usually starts, I leave the house pretty early to come in to do PT here on base. So typically as I'm driving in from Moore County down Manchester Road, I hang that right turn on the bridge and somewhere around 530 in the morning, I'm coming up past the McKellar's extension and there's typically three white buses 
sitting there at that intersection with about 100 candidates in the prep course that are getting off the bus, rucksacks on their back, reflective belts, and headlamps. And uh, that is when the motivation starts. Right about that moment, I can just feel that energy with 100 candidates getting ready to go to a road march at 530 in the morning when pretty much everybody else in America is still in bed, right? And that's rain or shine uh, and you know, hot, cold, doesn't matter. They're pretty much there three days a week no matter what. I continue on my drive into work. I usually drive into work, and uh, I come up Yakin Road down past Gruber, and I start making that turn over by Clay Hall. And usually about that time, our Alpha Company support battalion has usually got a formation, about another 100 soldiers starting to form up, and, and they're all stretching out, getting ready to do their morning routine. And then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pull into the headquarters around the back, and then I get to that back parking lot. And then I kind of think, like, I must be dreaming or General Beaupere made a mistake in hiring me, one of the two. Um, but then I, I come in, I badge in, the light turns green, and I'm like, all right, I still got a job, right? But I, I typically come upstairs, go to my office, and um, you know, I'll grab my water bottle, lace up my run shoes, and then I head out to the front of our, our building here at Bryan Hall. At this point, it's about 6.30 in the morning, and as you just kind of survey the land, you look around, and it's just a motivation factory. There's um, different pockets of formations, whether it's any one of the committees or courses we have going on, there's just a lot, a lot of activity, and that activity is just the most motivated young men and women in the Army that are out here giving it their best for nothing more than an opportunity to join this team, and you kind of feed off that energy. Then I typically, I'll, I'll make a right turn down Ardennes, or I'll make a left turn towards Engineer Trail, and then you're just constantly bouncing into any one of our different formations or courses. You get a sense of what we do here and how important that is to both the RSOF enterprise and the nation, and you feed off that motivation, and then a uh, before nine o'clock, my battery is usually fully charged to about 100%, right? Yes. And then throughout the day, um, yeah, there's some meetings that, that the boss and I have to take up in the conference room, but usually those meetings are, are centered around something or a course that we're running here at, at this institution. It's just super refreshing and motivating. A day in the life of SWIC is nothing but a constant battery charge, right? And then I usually drive home at the end of the day uh, feeling pretty fulfilled and pretty excited to come back here the next day. No, fantastic. Great way to put that, Command Sergeant Major. Really appreciate it. Over to General Beaupere and, uh, and Chief Ostrander, when you kind of get into work, what does that look like? And can you help just demonstrate the breadth of what our Special Warfare Center and School does in day in the life of the command team? Yeah, I, I think Sergeant Major Strong did a great job kind of laying out that, that initial start to the day and where we draw our energy from. And I agree, whenever I've got a bad day, just go find a student somewhere in the organization of which we have about 4,000 here or at one of our satellite campuses every day and just ask them, why are you here? Why are you serving? Boy, that'll get you motivated real quick, right? It'll put things into perspective and you're looking into the eyes of the future uh, and you're seeing the fire in the belly of, uh, of these uh, young Americans that are here to, to really test themselves and achieve something greater than, uh, than themselves. So that is a, you know, a great way to kind of start it off. I think well, you have to understand about SWIC just fundamentally as the Special Warfare Center in school, but also designated as a center of excellence. We have proponency for three branches, and those three branches are not exclusive, at least in two cases, are not exclusive to special operations, and that's civil affairs and psychological operations. Those branches span uh, COMPA-1, right now the active component in um, for Special Forces Command, but also in the case of CA and PSYOP, you have... Uh, a lot of that capacity in the Army residing in the reserve component, COMPO-3. But we're the branch proponent for those two branches, and so we have kind of a multi-COMPO responsibility. We also have a functional responsibility for irregular warfare, uh, which I think is pretty exciting. That kind of came down from USOC last year. It's an opportunity to 
think deeply about strategic competition and the role of irregular warfare in support of the joint force and uh, the Army's role in, uh, in that function. And so as you understand the proponency responsibilities, you start getting a sense of the bigger apparatus that is SWIC, right? It's not just about training the students. It's about creating the foundational doctrinal training development, personnel proponency that undergirds and, and builds the foundation of, uh, of the future soldiers that come out of this school. And so there's, uh, there's a lot going on here every day. I can't possibly touch all of it. Um, and then, you know, you also have a professional military education and a leader development responsibility here. So a Warrant Officer Institute, NCO Academy, that we have been entrusted by the Army to run and uh, make sure we professionalize our non-commissioned officers and our warrant officers to include candidacy of warrant officers and their initial training and entry into the regiment as uh, special forces warrant officers. So, you know, that that's kind of a long way of saying that I think to understand SWIC, you have to understand that the functions and our responsibilities here span from doctrine, revising doctrine, to training, and that is training initial entry, special operations, and CA and PSYOP soldiers for the total army, to leader development and education, to personnel proponency, which is tracking the health of a branch over the course of a, of a life cycle of a soldier. That's kind of how I frame my day when I walk in, knowing I've got that, that breadth of responsibility. Uh, and that kind of drives then where we want to take the organization going forward. No, sorry, that's a great response. I, I like that tagline is, SWIC, we do more than you think we do. Uh, a lot of times that perception is just the students or the candidacy going through assessment selection of whether that's civil affairs, psychological operations, or special forces. But just to kind of, you know, continue to amplify that, sir, our cadre members have come through the course foundationally, mm-hmm. and they come back here for education to get better at the things, be more creative thinkers, and then they're also instructors. And they come in, they help write that doctrine. They come help take lessons learned from the operational force and apply that to what we're framing that doctrine for the future. I think, again, SWIC, we do more than you think we do. <laughs> this organization does a lot. All right. You just built a bumper sticker there. Well done, Bobby. Uh, gentlemen... How are we doing right now? General Bopera, I know you've been in command for a year now. Yep. Kind of state of the union of SWIC right now. How do we look to you? How do we look a year in and want to kind of understand kind of from your gentleman's lens what that snapshot looks like? Yeah, no, thanks for that. So I think, you know, for me, I got you got to start with the operational environment. And I like to think that not only are we strategically driven here at SWIC, I think we're certainly threat informed. You got to understand, first and foremost, the challenges that we face as a special operations force as an army, as a joint force. And so we talk a lot to our students and to our cadre about the risk of potential future crisis or conflict. And the fact that the cadre and the soldiers that are at SWIC today will be leaders or operators in our formations in a couple, three, four years, right about the time where we're entering a window of potential significant risk of crisis or conflict with our adversaries. And you know, by that, I mean specifically the PRC. And so we, we spent a lot of time thinking through that and what we need to do as an institution to prepare for that. Uh, so you have to be threat informed, you have to understand the, uh, the environment. So you ask me to, the state of SWIC, I look at I look at the state of the institution through the lens of the operational environment and making sure we all collectively understand the sense of urgency we must have to, to produce and, and generate a world-class capability for the joint force and the Army, 
but also looking at ourselves and asking ourselves every day, are we doing the right things for the right reasons? So I've got, you know, the, the way I kind of frame the state of, of SWIC is always through where I see risk. And I think a lot, a lot of folks on the team have heard me talk about we have a lot of requirements. We have to constantly exercise the discipline to understand that the way we're structured maybe is not optimal to meet all those requirements, right? And so it's this balance of the TDA, the allocation of resources that we have at SWIC compared to what we're being asked to do. And there, there's, a, there's an imbalance there that I see after a year in the seat, and I worry about that a little bit. And so I think we're, we're already kind of operating with some risk there. And so it's incumbent upon us as leaders to, to try to mitigate that risk when we can. And then it's, it's really fundamentally looking at the programs of instruction that we have, making sure that we're, we're staying relevant to the operational environment. We're bringing in lessons learned from the operational environment, especially with the conflict in Ukraine right now, where I think we're, we're seeing and, and absorbing a lot of what a modern battlefield could look like, how lethal it could be. And it's definitely informing our, our POI. So are we being relevant enough? Are we staying tied into that, that operational environment I, tied, uh, I discussed at the beginning? And then really it's, it's kind of the third priority of SOCOM is transform. And it's asking ourselves, what do we need to relook uh, and reconsider in terms of structure and transformation and modernization inside of SWIC? And so we've started embarking on this, uh, on this journey towards SWIC 2030 and describing what that looks like. But that's, that's threat-informed, it's operationally driven, and it is very much based on where we see that imbalance of requirements and alignment. So I think that's where I fundamentally start with the state of SWIC. The one thing I will tell you, though, after a year in the seat, is our cadre and our leadership are absolutely phenomenal, right? Despite the risks despite the challenges we have with the operational environment and the recruiting environment that, that is also impacting us, we have senior non-commissioned officers and officers in our ranks that are absolutely committed to delivering the best possible soldiers as ready as they can be to fight and win anywhere in the world. I see that everywhere I go. It's our major-in-chief. We travel around. We see a lot of cadre. We see a lot of leaders. They are absolutely focused and driven and and they take that responsibility very seriously and very personally and to the point where uh, you know and this is anecdotal but I, I have met several cadre that actually are disappointed when one of their students fails right which is exactly what they should be that i'd expect nothing less they take personal responsibility an rsof attribute in uh, making sure that our students are successful and they're bought into it 100 percent. but we can only do that because the operational force, First SF Command, continues to invest that talent over here. Uh, and we have, we have a good process to do that. It may not always be popular, but uh, we need that talent over here. Otherwise, we can't produce quality. Yes, sir, you mentioned, uh, you know, talk about the highlight of leadership and cadre in the enterprise. And we have this bumper sticker saying, and I know you'll echo this, is that the cadre are their center of gravity for, for their special warfare center in school. It, CSM, I know you have a lot of engagement with the cadre, being the senior non-commissioned officer of the enterprise. Can you talk about that bumper sticker of the cadre being the center of gravity for this institution? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm more and more impressed every day with, with our cadre, with the things they're able to accomplish. So um, we're, we're pretty critical of ourselves in the special operations community, right? So we always think we can do better. So I think what you get with any one of the committees of the cadre you engage with is um, they're always trying to make those improvements be better today than they were yesterday both for them on a professional level, but also whatever course they teach, right? So 
you know, I think any committee you go to, every any course you go to, it's just every day is just an opportunity for them to like 1% better at whatever it is they're doing. So, if, and that that's across any committee. If you go out to the sear compound, they want to try to light a fire faster. If you went out to range 37, they want to get out of the holster faster and on target, right? That could be applied to any one of our committees. And that's just a reflection of the type of people we bring into the organization. But when it comes to that, just that professionalism, right? I, I got to see it on the receiving end at the operational force of the type of individuals that were signing into the unit, right? At first you think it's just, that's who they are. And it is, it's very much who they are. But then you realize you take this base ingredient of these people that come assess, select, and come through our qualification courses. And then you throw on leadership and, and, and the curriculum that we teach and you get a really good end product, right? So we get this upfront talent of just really amazing people. And then we reinforce that with the POI we teach and then the professionalism and leader development they get from our cadre, right? They're truly invested. I think there's, Though uh, we get some volunteers on the, the levy, as, as the CG alluded to, right? Comes around every summer, and, and there's a little bit of tension in every team room across the regiment, right? Because you know, people initially, they want to stay on the team. That's where they should want to be, right? But once they get here and they realize that their purpose is whether you're either, you're either producing something, i.e. I'm assessing, selecting, and running an MOS pathway I'm generating, or I'm helping teach an advanced skill. But once they get here, they're fully committed to that, and they do that better than anybody else in the enterprise. And it's just refreshing to be around. And I, and I think we were hitting on there too, CSM. And, you know, I have seen it in the last 12 months working in this institution is the ability to actualize culture mm-hmm. and your ability as a senior listed leader in the CG and the command team as well is developing the demand of cadre wanting to be here, right? Because you got to mm-hmm. pull somebody from the operational force that doesn't want to leave, right? But they have to understand the benefit of instructing the next generation of oh, yeah. soft professionals. And the ability of what we've seen from the command team over the last 12 months is the, the ability to actualize that culture. And you hit on that just briefly. The, the culture piece specifically? Yeah, yeah, the culture piece specifically. Yeah, you know, I think it goes back to our legacy, right? When you show up to SWIC, so your last time through here, if you were, you're coming back for your first instructor tour, right? Your, your point of departure, or your last known point is um, when you were a student, right? Get on and off the X, get to graduation, and, and move on to the operational force, regardless of 37, 38, or 18 series pathway. When you come back as an instructor, you kind of all of a sudden are reconnecting to your own experience from when you were a student, and then your head your head's up now. You're not you're not looking down at the ground on the X. You're a little more aware, and you start noticing all the the history and legacy of this RSOF enterprise. I mean, it starts when you walk into Bryant Hall, and off to the right is the Yarbrough Kennedy statue. Right, you start seeing all these bits and pieces of history wherever you go into any one of our facilities or any one of our training areas, and you start to realize you're you're part of something a heck of a lot bigger than yourself. And uh, then you start to realize, like, this great history and lineage is already written and that right now you're looking at a blank page and your actions are what's going to write that next page in the future of this RSOF regiment and what's it going to say, right? And I think that's where their professionalism kicks in of they, they don't want to let them their teammates down and, and they want to represent this brand well, right? And, um, and you see that in that culture every day. Again, like I said, they, they're, they're always trying to be better, 1% better today than they were yesterday. And it's just a good thing to be a part of. I think the other piece is we look at an E7 instructor as a future team sergeant, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a leader development aspect to this. I look at a, a field grade officer here at SWIC, guy like Bobby here, right? My, I, I look at Bobby as a future battalion commander in the Army or in SOF somewhere, right? And so there's a responsibility to make sure that in their time here, not only do they absorb that that legacy and they realize that they're standing on shoulders of those that came before them and they have to represent professionally with excellence, but we're developing them to go back to the operational force, Mm -hmm. to be those leaders of those formations. 
that will potentially have to respond to a significant crisis. And so I think that that's part of that, that discussion that we have as command teams when we go out and speak to those instructors and we see the passion in their eyes. I look at that instructor as a future sergeant major, future E8, future battalion commander, uh, and a group commander. I think that's critical. Yeah, and we're also able to – we're linking in generations of our soft soldiers is, is another unique thing here. And, you know, the CG's got a uh, – we've got a Graybeard event coming up next week and a, a big event here later uh, in the spring where we're going to bring back some of our – our retirees and our, our soft vets. But Do they actually have to have gray beards, though? Um, they don't have to, but we prefer them to have big, long, long gray beards and preferably flannel shirts. A little just for men, a little peppered in there. Braids, <laughs> braids help, too. <laughs> but, but we, we plenty full of those. <laughs> but, but somebody's going to show up like that now. <laughs> but but what you see is uh, you know you get you get your students coming through the pipeline, and then you have the cadre, and then you have the senior leadership throughout SWIC, and you get the you get to nest all three of those generations here on on every any day at any committee at any course, you know even in the DFAC that the CG and I could be at the dining facility in line behind you know somebody who just finished an ANS right, and on the other side of that individual might be you know uh, an, an E7 instructor right, and you're seeing three generations of leaders, um, and they also probably have somewhere a civilian GS employee who is uh, probably a 20 to 30 year RSOF veteran and now 20 to 30 years coming back here as a civilian employee and you connect those generations and there's a lot of goodness in there and just lessons learned but investment into each other and into this enterprise. You see that come together at the regimental first formations, right? Where whether it's a CA graduation, SF or PSYOP graduation, you have the veterans, you have the retirees, you have the instructors and you have the students all together in a formal ceremony where they don the green beret or they, you know, they, they become a CA professional or PSYOP professional. And it's all done collectively with those generations present because I think it reinforces the fact that you're now joining a legacy and a history. And that, that's done really well in, mm-hmm. uh, in those graduation ceremonies. Uh, first training group that puts those together does a, a phenomenal job. That, that's what's also so cool about being here at our institution is we, we, we have the touch points with the newest members who are the future of our regiment across all three RSOFT branches. But you have the opportunity to learn from and be mentored in those touch points with the people who, who serve generationally in different combat zones or different generations, whether that's the Cold War, whether that's here in Desert Storm, different eras of the early 2000s and everybody likes to come back so we can we can receive that coaching and mentorship and hear those stories. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely incredible being back here. Yep. I want to pivot real quick before I get to the, to the boss, reach over to uh, Chief Ostrander. He's just coming up from... Uh, uh, Ostrander. <laughs> just coming, I hear he likes being called that. Just, just coming back from uh, Second Special Warfare Training Group. The boss talked about us being threat-informed and applying a little bit of change, applying lessons learned, so that we have better skills for our force. What stood out when you were at Second Special Warfare Training Group about how we're learning from the force and applying those to better the training that we give the force? Yes, sir. I appreciate that. I think the CSM and the CG hit on it. You know, the cadre are, are our core of experts. There's the subject matter experts that have been out there. They received the operational experience. They brought those tactics, techniques, and procedures back to the schoolhouse. And then now we're, we're inculcating the newest generation with those skills, and we're perfecting it. And, and really, like the CSM, this is my first SWIC tour coming into Second Special Warfare Training Group and then coming up to the SWIC headquarters. Not having seen this before, it is truly humbling to see the cadre that come back to the headquarters 
and be able to instruct and provide that training to the next generation of RSOFT, regardless across all three tribes. And throughout the outstations with, you know, in my two years at Second Special Warfare Training Group, 70,000 high-risk training events, whether that's free-falling out in Yuma, dives down in Key West, or executing operations out at Range 37, those events are high-risk every day, and the cadre take full responsibility for everything that happens out there. And without their professionalism, we wouldn't be where we're at. So much so is that we send off cadre to civilian competitions, whether it's shooting competitions or anything like that. And we have the expert cadre that either, you know, win those competitions or place very, very high to include world championships and bring that. It's just rehoning their skills and applying it in a different manner. But it truly demonstrates the RSOF attributes of, hey, this is how we are we are experts out there in the field. So they bring that back to the schoolhouse. They're able to tie that into the curriculum as well as going out to support operational missions downrange. They're able to bring those TTPs back, update the POIs, and uh, just be able to provide the excellent training out there. No, absolutely fantastic. So we're, we're staying relevant. We are forward-focused, but we're learning from what's what we've done previously. And we're trying to figure out how we can make ourselves better, better postured, better skilled, better trained, better educated for what is next. Now I would like to dive into what is SWIC 2030, and what does that transformation truly look like for our formation and our people? I'll, I'll start, and then I'll you know let my teammates uh, jump in and fill in any blanks, but... I think fundamentally, when when I came on board uh, last year, and you know, Sergeant Major Strong was with me. We had Chief Steve Finney at the time as the Command Chief Warrant Officer. Just a quick assessment of where the Army was going, and we we were hearing a lot about delivering the Army of 2030. What we weren't hearing is what does that mean institutionally for the TRADOC enterprise? Institutionally, are we properly organized within CAC and more broadly here at SWIC? And so I, I think it just caused me to pause and think deeply about what is the requirement levied upon us to remain agile in a future crisis, but also taking this operationally focused perspective and threat-informed perspective and realizing that, first and foremost, I fundamentally believe that we are in a global competition for strategic influence right now in the information dimension, even in the, in the human and physical dimensions, we're, we're out there competing with our adversaries for access, placement, and influence. And so, you, you know, you, you just have to ask yourselves organically, are we properly structured to provide the best possible capability to meet that threat and that environment of strategic competition? And so, you know, it just, it, it led us to ask some questions. And the, one of the first questions I asked as, as a leader is, Every other school in the U.S. Army has branch commandants. Who is the commandant for civil affairs in PSYOP? I did, we didn't have one, right? The answer was, well, you are, sir. I'm like, well, okay. I, I'm a career special forces officer. I know I can do a lot, and the Q course was great, but um, I have my limitations, and you know, I'd rather represent the special forces regiment as best as I can. And so looking at my left and right, realizing I didn't have those senior leaders in those two branches to represent them to the Army and the Joint Force, I think was a gap in our swing. There was, you know, in the, in the initial assessment, there was, there was a, 
a problem there. We had had commandants before. It was a slightly different construct. I don't want to revisit that ground necessarily, but I think there is an importance to having a branch chief that drives not only the doctrine, but also the whole synchronization of future force modernization for those branches. And so it started us thinking about construct, organizational construct, and what you know an ideal SWIC 2030 could look like. And that's where we kind of started visualizing, okay, we realize we're not going to snap our fingers and get the ideal construct overnight. But if we set an azimuth and set a name point of 2030, and, you know, assuming initially unconstrained in terms of resources, which I know is, is a bold assumption, but at least putting something on paper that what, what this institution should look like, that started happening in the fall. And then on top of that, with the irregular warfare proponency coming to SWIC, we started thinking deeply about what that really means. What is proponency? Is it as a functional proponent? What do you take on? Certainly, you have a doctrinal responsibility, but you also have a training, a leader development, and an education responsibility. And so, is proponent as a term too limiting? And should it be maybe something more ambitious? Maybe something like an irregular warfare academy? And how do how do we put that into a 2030 construct? And so, those those pieces all started coming together for us. So that's kind of, you know, that's, that's the 101, the genesis of SWIC 2030. There's been a lot of great work by the staff. We stood up some OPTs and, you know, a lot, all the training groups provided input, a lot of IPRs, a lot of time spent with the staff as leaders, giving azimuth checks to the point now where I believe we're ready to start movement, right? Uh, and I think that's, that's the key message today. There's a lot of analysis, but now we, we need to put some tasks to paper and tasks to commanders to start moving in that direction. That's kind of the, the genesis story and, you know, happy to answer any follow-on questions. I appreciate that, sir, because I think fundamentally what people don't understand, and I didn't understand it until I came back to SWIC, but you have the school part of SWIC, right? Everything knows the school part, the first, second, mm-hmm. uh, SWIMG, the Warrant Officer Institute, and the NCOA, right? You have the training in enterprise of what is SWIC. But people forget the center part, which is the three now four effectively proponencies, and you have to manage all of that. So as a you know commanding general and the command team, having to manage the span of control of that much responsibility, to your point, sir, you're going to lose efficiencies gained, right? Because you're focused on training, and then you have the center part, which is all the institutional priorities. So I think people need to understand, like you think SWIC, you don't think about this, the institutional part, the COE, the center of excellence. We just think about the training group side and the training and the training evolution of students. And I think fundamentally people lose that in, in, in kind of uh, where they view SWIC holistically. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the, in the SWIC 2030 construct, the center still remains very relevant, but it takes, it takes more of a joint and a combined construct. So a regular warfare academy would be a center function. RSOF doctrine that, that brings the tribes of RSOF and USOC together, that stays in the center. There's still a role for a center in education and leader development. But I think where, where fundamentally disjointed is when you have branch proponency residing in a center, but the school, quote unquote, training battalion residing in a training group. And so you, you have a disjointed approach to branch development and branch training and education and so SWIC 2030 proposes to bring the proponency and the training battalions together for each of the branches, right? That's, that's the fundamental vision, if you will, of SWIC 2030. We believe that the PSYOP school is probably the one where we need to invest most heavily and most urgently just because of the, the threat and the, uh, the environment and 
potential future Army structure changes and growth of PSYOP requirements in the Army. And so if we don't get ahead of that now, uh, we're missing an opportunity. So as we head down this road, Derek, you're absolutely right to kind of highlight the centerpiece, and I appreciate you driving us towards that discussion because we fundamentally have to look at this center and school construct and what should reside in a center and what should reside in a school or plural schools. The vision is a CA school, a PSYOP school, and a special forces school with the center in support. And these things all complement each other, though. Absolutely. I think I've heard heard you speak several times, sir. It's, it's uh, the unity of effort and the unity of function. If the center and the school aren't aligned, one doesn't necessarily inform the other or as quickly inform the other. And then how do you synchronize the training that is supported by the doctrine, which, again, continues to reform as you look at future constructs and the future possible fights. Right. And so aligning those uh, and having that unity of, of effort and unity of function, I think, is critical. Yeah. And, you know, in, in our minds, the commandant is an 06. Probably we should have a, a, a command sergeant major E9 branch chief as well. So you have a, a command team for that branch. But with, a, with an 06, and in my mind, that 06 is CSL select, right? I think that's really important because there's a command function to unity of command and effort. That 06 can also represent the branch up and out. In a force modernization, in a CAC forum, we were just at Fort Leavenworth in, uh, in the CAC COE commanding general and commandants course. We're the only school that shows up with no commandants, right? Every other commandant in the army is there at the table. So I think we're, we're missing an opportunity for a voice. We're missing an opportunity for representation, especially when you have two branches in CA and PSYOP that are multi-compo. I think there's a little bit of you know, we're, we're sense of urgency, we're time-bound, and we're, we're threat-informed, right? So we're, we're really good at educating and training for the last war we just fought, mm. and we've mastered that. Like, nobody does it better than us. But if we think of 2030 and 2040, are we still – are we training and educating there's our doctrine support that 2030 and 2040 fight that we're going to face? You know, I think we all think that's further away than it really is, but in 2030, I'll be retired, you know, and, and – in 2030, some of the individuals graduating SLC in the Captain Square course will be, you know, sergeant majors and company commanders. Individuals out at CGSC are going to be battalion and brigade commanders, right? And, and new recruits will have three or four years on a team. And in 2040, that another whole evolution of that. Now, so it's not as far away as we think. And if, if we're going to prepare the formation for those kind of threats, we, we've got to look at the thing, how we're structured and the things we're teaching to get us there, right? And when I think of – I'll go back to the – you know, the week the CG and I just met at Leavenworth, we, they kind of framed the operational environment, and then we, we kind of looked through the, the systems and processes to build those kind of formations. And I, I wrote down in my notebook here, I'm looking at it. I kind of bend it into what's the current force, what's 2030 threats look like, and what does 2040 look like. And, you know, the, the war we just fought and the way we're currently structured is BCTs as a unit of action on rotational deployments, and, and we dominate all domains. And we continue to train that way, we're structured that way, we're equipped that way. But in 2030, we're looking at divisions at a unit of action, and we're not doing rotations. We're doing soft for regular warfare and strategic deterrence, and we've got to be prepared on a moment's notice to go right into LISCO and potentially do irregular warfare and strategic deterrence in one theater while doing LISCO in others, and ultimately in an environment that's contested. And if we go further into 2040, it's AI-enabled, man-machine teaming, heavily censored, and distributed operations. If we continue to train the way we are and structure the way we are, we are not built for 2040. Thinking even further ahead of, you know, a private that graduates OSIT or, you know, IET this summer 
and a lieutenant that commissions, you know, this summer coming out of ROTC, they're going to be leaders in 2030 and 2040. They're going to see that in their career timeline. Now look at our own careers. You know, I joined the Army in 1998. I've seen a couple uniform changes. I've seen some new equipment. But I don't know if I've seen that kind of massive transformation of the Army in my own career, right? I've seen a couple new uniforms, maybe a few new vehicle platforms. But but this threat is rapidly evolving, and we need to evolve with it. I talked to a, a PSYOP soldier today, actually, at SLC this morning. Extremely talented NCO. I won't use his name, but just finished the NDU master's program. Wrote a pretty complicated research project that I was like, wow, what made you pick that topic, right? Again, shows you the quality of the people we bring in. Oh, yeah. And he asked me a, a very, very passionate question. I could, I, could, I could see his energy and feel his passion in this question, but I could also sense his frustration, right? Because he, he, he knows the right answer. He really does. But he's somewhat frustrated in, like, how do we get there, right? And I think by organizing SWIC the way it is for the professionalization of all three branches and to get us closer to being able to accomplish those missions and the structure we need, it helps, you know, get to that. I mean, Derek and I can go back to, we were S3 sergeant majors mm-hmm. at the time, 95th was in the middle of their, you know, their capabilities-based assessment, CBA. And, you know, fast forward, that's five or six years ago, right? Now you're starting to see the benefits of of all that hard work and investment that everybody was kind of, there was some friction there and nobody knew how it was going to go, but we look forward now from from that time and it's it's been to the benefit of the branch. And, you know, Derek got to see that as an S3 sergeant major at the brigade, then a battalion CSM, and now follow it through as the proponent sergeant major. If, if you're one of our listeners right now and you're not impressed with a special forces senior non-commissioned officer talking strategy and how he thinks in his free time about what that future fight looks like and not focused on just, say, the grass out front or haircuts, like you have to be incredibly impressed at the level of thought that was just kind of put on the table from Command Sergeant Major He's Strong. pretty good at drill and ceremony, too, yeah, just yeah, for yeah. the record. <laughs> <laughs> right, Lee? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Major Tuttle handed me note cards before this. <laughs> Surprise. I, I'd like to dive in, though. Uh, so, gentlemen, so uh, SWIC 2030, sir, we talked about initiating movement. What are the first things that need to happen? Again, our, our listeners uh, are interested to see how does this get from uh, step one to step two, what kind of triggers that yeah. to initiate that movement? No, so. it's critical. It's critical. So I think, you know, fundamentally, and Sergeant Major and I, I are absolutely aligned on this, the, the first thing is do no harm to the training and the students in the pipeline, right? That that has to be absolutely critical in everything we do. So as we, as we take a calculated approach to this, we want to make sure that the pipelines don't suffer. There's no impact to training. And, and quite frankly, I say transparent. I want the students to know and understand where we're going. I think it's important, but it shouldn't impact their day-to-day training and their, their MOS development, and, and they still need to be world-class. And I'm, I'm, I'm confident we'll protect that. But I, I got to say that up front because I, I think that's really important. The second piece to getting started is you got to put a commander in charge, right? I mean, we, we all know this operationally. We've all been around the Army for, for a while. You can't start a new initiative and you can't conduct a mission if you don't have tasks to subordinate units and you don't task organize for purpose. So right now, just taking a look at how we're structured, step one in the initial process here, number one, we agree the PSYOP school really is the most critical because we're in a global competition for influence. We have doctrine now that is making influence a function of information, the information manual ADP 313 will be published soon. I'd encourage the audience to get out there and get familiar with it. But influence is one of the five functions. And, uh, you know, I think our PSYOP force is well aligned for that. So we're going to start with the PSYOP school. But to put a commander in charge of it, and and so that I don't take all that on at my level, quite frankly, too far separated from, from the school itself, 
we're going to charge a commander, one of the training group commanders, to take this on. And then we're going to slowly task organize the school under that training group, right? The idea being it's more of an incubation period. It's an opportunity to experiment, see what this looks like. We've brought in a phenomenal Compo 306 PSYOP officer to kind of serve as uh, the provisional deputy commandant for the branch to help advise that training group commander on how to build a psychological warfare and psychological operations school. But let that commander do the mission analysis and do the experimentation. Put an 06 in charge of it is kind of the, the, the step one. We want to do that here in the first quarter of uh, of FY24 so we'll we'll start movement here in October obviously you know we'll go through the orders process that commander will go through mission analysis but the idea is inside of that training group 5th battalion and the proponent for psychological operations will come together for the first time right so incubated under a commander let that commander run the assessment and then slowly build that organizational structure under that commander who has the staff capacity quite frankly to lead this effort on behalf of uh, the institution. As we look ahead about six months, the USAC commanding general has the authority to establish a provisional organization, right? And so when we think the experiment has uh, given us enough feedback on what the PSYOP school could and should look like, there's enough analysis, I think we'll be in a good place to go to the USAC commanding general and ask for a provisional organization. That's how we stood up SWIMG, right? SWIMG was initially a battalion under first training group, pulled out from first training group, created as a provisional organization, and then became another training group. So it's it's a little bit of the same model, if you will. The school will stand up under a training group, provisionally established by the USAC commanding general, and then we can really start building out the infrastructure to to run that school uh, efficiently. And then, you know, the goal would be, in my mind, by on or about, uh, let's say, FY26, we, we start with a CSL opportunity at the school with a PSYOP 06. Once we've pulled the school out from that training group, then you incubate the CA school and you do the same thing for the civil affairs school. Another six months go by, you establish a provisional school, right? So it's kind of a, it's an incremental approach. You can kind of start visualizing the timeline in your mind. But uh, step one, do no harm to the training and the students. Step two, put a commander in charge. That's that's fundamentally, I think, how we're going to go about this. Okay, can I jump on there? Yeah, sir? go ahead. Um, just the, uh, the incubation period and patience is something I think about, right? So uh, General Bopair has a vision, uh, and that vision is very much so looking at the RSOF and the SWIC of 2030 and 40 to, to meet those threats that we've, we've kind of highlighted earlier, right? But just like any anything else, when you have a um, – you know, organizational change, there's always a little bit of how do you communicate that, and then the friction of, you know, hey, I'll steal one from C.S. and Weimer, the two things we hate and saw is status quo and change, right? Um, so, so how we communicate it is key, right? So the, the vision is out there, the, the CG has put it out there, you know, we've had a, an OPT that has put a ton of planning in this, so we've got a good foundation there, but now we're, we're getting into that execution phase, and that's where we're going to see if, if things start to come apart or do they come together. I think my worry, just like anything, when we set a goal is we abandon things too soon, before we see the results of that goal. So something I think we've really got to exercise is patience, right, is is we're probably going to have some all sorts of good effects compounding, but we won't have tangible or measurable results from it, right? And if we just wait another six months or, uh, you know, another class cycle, we start to see those benefits, but we have to exercise patience as leaders all the way down to that cadre level of let this thing get through a couple iterations so we can see the benefit before we decide to get off course. And I, I've noticed that just across my career and anything we do in the military is, we're actually doing a whole lot of good 
but we, we sometimes we, we get off the gas or we, we abandon it too soon that we never really got to see the benefit. So I'd ask as we get through some of this incubation period, let's actually see this thing through more than one iteration before we decide to course correct, right? Because I think it is going to take time, right? Let me let me pile on here real quick because I, I think that's so important, right? So we tactical patience, absolutely critical. The other thing, if we're going to stand up a PSYOP school, Myself, the SAR major in chief here, can't want it more than the PSYOP leaders in our formation, mm. right? And this is a great forum to communicate this out to the team, but we need those PSYOP leaders in our formation to come together on this, right? At some point, I'm going to step off the gas. Somebody else is going to put their foot on that, that accelerator, and that, that needs to be our PSYOP leaders. They need to own it. Otherwise, you know, we, we're, we're not going to get ownership. My sense is right now, talking to our PSYOP leaders, at least in this formation, there is buy-in on this. The incubation period is where they're really going to make their mark and drive this forward. So that's that's my challenge to the leaders out there. And then, you know, the same will go for CA down the road. What I have really appreciated is the uh, U.S. Army Reserve component support to this initiative. And I think we can't do it without them. You know, the fact that they brought an 06 in here on fairly short notice, he just came out of command literally months ago and uh, is on board now already helping to steer this effort, I think is a testament to their commitment to this. That commitment has been so critical to where we want to go. I do want to talk briefly about that reserve component and just pull the thread a little bit because that, that is really important, especially for PSYOP and civil affairs. There is, in my mind right now, as we lay out the way we're structured as an institution, as you look at 2030, we are the only center of excellence where the total Army school system training brigade on the reserve side is not aligned geographically with its center of excellence. We're the only branch where our sixth, it's the sixth training brigade, sits in New York, downtown New York City, Fort Totten. Every other center of excellence has their training brigade aligned on their installation. We have petitioned the U.S. Army Reserve Command to consider a stationing action to move that brigade here. That brigade is the only brigade in the reserves that is charged with CA and PSYOP training for the reserves, but it sits up in New York. Why is that, sir? That's a good question, Bobby. I, I'm not sure I can answer why. Um, you know, the, there's probably a long stationing story to that that I'm not privy to, but uh, it's a gap in our swing in sure. terms of compo alignment, right? And I think for the CA and the PSYOP school, it is about more than anything else. And everything that, that we talked about with Derek and the alignment of the proponent and the training, I agree. But more than anything, it's about Compo 1 and Compo 3 alignment uh, for branch proponency. And so bringing that brigade here onto our campus, integrating them into our footprint and into the PSYOP and CA school is absolutely fundamental to where we want to go with this. And I actually just started thinking about this as we were talking in here. About, I think there's going to be some residual benefit from this restructure and this innovation experimentation period of um, what was your your bumper sticker up front? Uh, SWIC, we do more than you think, or something. SWIC, we do more than you think we do. Yeah, SWIC. We, so I think as we and that that's good. We do a lot more than people think they do, and I could say that from my experience coming to the force here. But um, we do it very lean, and a lot of times we do it very cheap, and a lot of times we do it at the expense of people's time and their families' time, right? Because we won't let it fail. But I think as we get into some of this experimentation, we're going to realize we do a lot of things that maybe we shouldn't. Maybe the residual benefit is is we hyper focus on things that matter, and and some things might get sunsetted, right? Because um, we're going to realize that hey, if it doesn't reach towards that goal of 2030 and beyond, is it even worth doing, right? Or are we kidding ourselves? And it's going to force us to to really hone in on what does matter. So 
maybe then we'll have to change the bumper sticker to SWIC. We still do more than you think, but less than we used to. I don't know. But, but I think there is going to be a residual benefit there. Glad you uh, bring that up, sir, CSM chief. Uh, so, you know, with the realignment with 2030 and this combo rebalance and optimization of the enterprise, how do you envision force reduction cuts? There's always that looming force reduction narrative. It's out there, sir. We've got to tackle it, whether true or not. How do you foresee the, the optimization of this 2030 SWIC nesting in with potential cuts or no cuts or, or what that looks like? Yeah, I think I saw so first and foremost, just, you know, for the enterprise, no decisions have been made, right? I think that's really important just to baseline everybody that there's always a potential risk of force structure reductions. I think the Army's been looking at this for a while. And so we'll, we'll deal with that when, when we get to it. So our major laid it out very well. We're doing it very lean, right? Our, and, and our TDA was never optimally aligned to the way we're structured, right? So we built SWIMG, we built second training group, and our TDA never quite caught up to the way we're structured and the way we're organized. So part of SWIC 2030, quite frankly, is making sure that we're, we're right-sizing this organization. And I really like, you know, the points our major made about taking a look at what maybe we don't need to do anymore. And I think there's a few things out there that probably we don't. But, but when you bring the proponent and the training battalion together, I think you achieve some synergy that maybe does create some efficiencies. I don't know. We'll see, right? The, the experimentation will bear that out. But SWIC 2030 is very much about the proper alignment of the TDA and addressing our gaps and staying on top of those gaps uh, and making sure that the NCO Academy no longer runs on borrowed military manpower, right? I use that as you guys have heard me say this, but I think as an institutional leader, I can't fundamentally accept that. I, I am not comfortable with the professional military education of our non-commissioned officer corps, which I fundamentally believe in as paramount to, to who we are as an RSOF force being run on excess and borrowed military manpower. But that's a fact in this organization today, and that's a significant risk. So if there are force structure reductions, to the credit of our commanding general at USASOC, he has done everything in his power to protect SWIC, and I believe he will continue to do that. But, you know, you never know, right? You just never know. We'll have to reassess, right? And that'll be kind of a, a mid-stride reassessment of our azimuth and see where we're at right now, okay? But I'm going to continue planning as if our current structure is protected until it's not, right? But I'll tell you what I worry about more is a crisis that maybe we had not anticipated and the agility and flexibility of this institution to react to a sudden growth in requirements and a growth in demand in soft. And so we didn't see 9-11 coming, right? If we look back to where we were in 9-11 and our production rate and quality at the time and what transpired over the next several years in the course of a crisis and a conflict, are we agile enough as an institution to react to that crisis today? And actually thinking not about cuts, but thinking about growth if we have to. And do we have the right structure to produce at scale, probably you know, bad choice of words, but, but to produce maybe more efficiently and effectively based on a higher demand, PSYOPs, CA, and Special Forces soldiers because we're in a shooting war with an adversary and we're losing forces at a higher rate than we anticipated. I worry more about that than I do about force structure reductions. Yes, yeah, sir. I think jumping in on that is, yeah. is understanding what our baseline tasks are, the baseline training and education, and combining that with the advanced skills and being able to take a hard look as to what are the CTLs that we're teaching baseline 
and assessing those against advanced skills? Do we cut away some of those courses? And then it gives us the agility in the time of need. Do we stop running the advanced portion of that to be able to create the baseline soldier to get it out to the operational force at the time of need? Yep, spot on. This would be my perfect opportunity for that F-150 analogy that Derek and I talk about. Uh, it is, <laughs> we it is throw it out there, man. <laughs> it is a great analogy. Yeah. Uh, I, I personally love it because... Wait, hold on. Do you all have F-150s? Every RSOC operator should have yeah, an F-150. King right? Ranch? That's an uh, American uh, iconic vehicle there, sir. You don't have one? I drive mine. Okay, okay. okay just make sure. Is it on a lift kit? That's... <laughs> Because if not, then you're not a real Green Beret. It looks damn good, the, uh, the King Ranch in the parking lot. So, it's I mean, you, you drove a Civic to work today. <laughs> I did. I, yeah. I'm also I'm also make good economical choices <laughs> uh, and environmental. So, 37 of the miles a gallon in my Honda Civic. But That's cute. I do have an F-150. Uh, no, so Derek and I talk about it quite a bit of, um, like, SWIC at the end of the day, we're, we're an assembly line in a factory, right? It sounds terrible to, to put it that way, but the difference is, is our assembly line in a factory takes raw material in the form of human capital, people that mm-hmm. we bring in, and we run it through – you know, a series of things along this assembly line out the other end is a product, uh, whether that's an RSOF, you know, entry-level soldier or an advanced skill. But at the end of the day, we're pushing people through this assembly line, right? You know, Chief is kind of describing like, hey, what, are the, what is that baseline, right? Well, if you think about it, like Ford at the end of the day, it sends things to this assembly line and all F-150s are built off the same frame, whether you're the base model, like work truck or the Raptor, right? Like that's the reality. So like the Raptor is like that 10-year RSOF veteran PME complete with all these advanced skills, right? That entry-level soldier is that base F-150 rolling off the lot, but the base ingredient is the same. So I think when we look at that, like our assessment selection is probably the one thing that has no to little change because I think that recipe is about as good as it gets because the people we select, right? Um, and that is like our steel frame that's entering the factory. And as this, as we push things along that factory, what are the things that we're bolting onto it? You know, tire, suspension, leather seats, sunroof, whatever. But at the end of the day, the one thing we'll always have to sustain is pushing out the base product out the other end, right? And if, at times we've got to come back and do more bolt-on. We can. But um, what is that baseline, right? Some of us are the Raptors with 200,000 miles on them, and oh, yeah. the bumper is, you know, it's taped to the car, which is kind of where I'm at right now. But That's uh, why we have HPW, sir. That's right. Well, that, that good segue, Gary, yeah. exactly where I was pick going. A right little bit of maintenance. You can get that thing back yeah. out there on the track. Yeah, I'm still running. <laughs> we'll make sure each year F-150s have a nice Pineland Underground sticker on the tailgate there of it, too, yeah, gentlemen. Yeah. We'll yeah. even tag a couple other Chevys and Dodges, I guess, too. <laughs> and and I, the analogy is strong, right? Because the analogy is the standards are not reduce regardless what happens at the institutional level whether reorg change gain efficiency mm-hmm. it doesn't mean there's changes out in selection assessment right because there's always that cadre out there well this is going to get lower this is going to no it's not right that's effectively producing the most highly qualified army special operations yeah. soldiers in the community do we get like residual funding from ford for marketing for them on this podcast <laughs> not a paid advertisement <laughs> not paid a, you might have to edit this part out actually now that i think about it gonna need some footnotes here <laughs> coming kind of uh kind of close on our time here with you and i know i know you'll have busy schedules there's a lot going on at the special warfare center in school uh, with the RSOF pre-command course coming up, with the Greybeard engagement, Greybeard rendezvous that we have here, bringing back the former command teams, uh, looking at offsite coming up. We have uh, the AUSA, or Association of the United States Army event, our regular warfare forum, so many things going on. But again, focusing primarily on our core mission of producing that world-class RSOF person fundamentally here so we can apply them as an adaptive problem solver in the force anywhere across the globe. Wanted to ask you, gentlemen, as we kind of close this up, it's also CAP season or Commander's Assessment Program season, whether that's BCAP or Sergeant Major's Assessment Program. 
What would be y'all's individual advice to those those lieutenant colonels or those majors or those E9s who are about to go compete to go command at that next level, whether it's the brigade or battalion level? What would be your advice to them as they prepare to go into that cap season? I'll kick it off here. I'm sure my teammates have some good counsel out there. So first of all, if you were selected to attend CAP, congratulations, right? You, you kind of made it through an initial screening, and uh, I think that, that speaks to your future potential, and uh, it's a great opportunity. And I think you have to look at it that way. It's a great opportunity to learn about leadership and learn about yourself. So it, it is a professional development tool that I think the Army has developed, and uh, you should absolutely take, take hold of that opportunity as, uh, as, a, as a way to walk away as a better leader regardless of whether you get selected for command or not. Secondly, I, I think be yourself, right? At this point in your career as a senior enlisted leader or as an, as an officer, you are who you are, right? Don't try to change yourself. Go out there, be yourself, be who you are, be the leader that the Army and, and you are true to, and you'll be okay. But I think where, you know, and this is kind of my third point, where, where I think from my perspective, having sat on the other side of the, the command assessment program, I think many of our officers in the Army have some blind spots, right? And really, it's, it's about being self-aware of how you are perceived as a leader and a peer by your subordinates and those that uh, work to your left and right. And sometimes we don't quite have that right. We, we think we see ourselves through the eyes of others, but that's not always quite accurate. And so self-awareness is something you will certainly walk away with. But think before you go of ways to be more self-aware and put yourself in positions with your peers and your subordinates to, to solicit feedback candidly about your performance and think through, through that before you go to the assessment program. And, and I think, again, fundamentally, it's a great opportunity. It's a great program. Uh, and you'll come back a, a better, better leader on, uh, on the other side. Sorry, Major, any thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, well, first, I don't know if we've ever been better led organizationally than we are right now at, at every level from that company echelon all the way up to those 06s. I mean, uh, you know, I, I look at the people that are commanders, sergeant majors, you know, company commanders and first sergeants today. And um, again, we've never been better led. And to lead at any level is, is an honor and it's a privilege. So if you're invited to go to those assessments, you should ab- absolutely go unless you're not interested in commanding. And, and some people aren't. So if you're not interested, don't go. If you are interested, you should absolutely go if you're invited, right? Um, and give it your best shot. Understanding it's an extremely talented pool of individuals you're going to be up against, right? So how do you prepare yourself for that? I think um, the one thing you can't can't fake and the assessment will pull that out of you is, is authenticity, right? Like be yourself. And the, the CG had mentioned that. But you got to be genuine. You got to be authentic, you know, both through the feedback that, that you're going to solicit. And the feedback is those actions have already occurred. So if you were not genuine or authentic prior to invited to cap, being invited to CAP, it'll, it'll come out in those surveys, right? And then there's also an interview process where you can't fake that either. Uh, I'd say uh, use your resources, right? If you're serving in the operational force and you have access to uh, the sports psychologists and things like that, you should use them. But um, don't overthink it either, right? Like you can, you can maybe over-prepare versus just being yourself, giving it your best shot. And then you know, if you're lucky enough to get a command, you should do it. Yeah, I'd like to comment about the uh, Special Operations Command Chief Warrant Officer panel. Previously, the Command Chief Warrant Officer being put in place was kind of, hey, it's the next guy in line. You show up, 
you stick around long enough, you're going to assume that position. A few years back, we have established the Special Operations Command Chief Warrant Officer Panel, which has professionalized the selection of Command Chief Warrant Officers within RSOF. And this goes for not only an SF command, but also our SOAC as well. And so within the 160th and our aviation brethren, we are all competing within that same panel for our requisite specialties, whether you're a flyer, go be the command chief warrant officer there or the technical specialist uh, here in SF. And so we have just completed our last panel the second week of July, and those results have been uh, released out there for the next command chief warrant officers to the operational force and training groups and warrant officer institute commandant. And so as we continue to refine our process, taking many lessons learned from the CAP and uh, BCAP and others, it's a holistic view and we're trying to make those changes. But as CSM said, and and, uh, General Beaupere, be yourself. It will demonstrate your true qualities of who you are, and that brings it out as the panel votes. Hey, this is a great opportunity to recognize, I think, uh, CW5 Steve Finney, who until very recently was a part of this command team. Gary came in behind him, and we're going to bid him farewell next week. So, you know, I know Steve's uh, out traveling right now, and – We'll be back on the ground, but uh, departing SWIC after almost six years, I think, in uh, in different capacities here at SWIC, tremendous institutional leader, tremendous leader for RSOF, and he is going to bring that ex- institutional experience because he was selected through that panel process by General Braga to be the next CCWO at USASOC, uh, and so he's going to go uh, represent really, really well, but uh, just super proud of Steve and uh, just wanted to take the opportunity here publicly to recognize his service, uh, not only to the nation, but to to RSOF and USOC. Obviously, super excited to get Gary on board, right? Probably the, the right leader at the right time with his background. So we're, we're, we've been really fortunate in the CCWO ranks. I think you guys got it right. Uh, so thanks for highlighting yes, that, sir. Gary. No, love that. So, yeah, I think a couple things uh, that I want to maybe just wrap up with Bobby and Derek. So, number one, as we think more deeply about SWIC 2030 and we start implementation, Bobby, I think you mentioned up front the special warfare edition that's coming up here of of our magazine focused on the future. I would encourage our teammates out there to think but write about the future, right? There is an opportunity here to put some critical thought, academic rigor, against this vision and the implementation of the vision. I want that literature to flow. I want those ideas to flow. I want our folks to be published. I threw this challenge out to our NDU students last week, also challenged our CGSC students that we just saw this week. But there is an opportunity here to write about the future and and drive change down to the operator level, the instructor level. And so I just encourage the audience to, to consider that challenge and, and submit some articles for the, the next edition. I think that's key. Secondly, you know, I think we're alignment matters here up through USASOC, the Army, and to SOCOM. And I think you, you have to fundamentally start with where General Fenton is. We remain a people business, right? People still remains the number one priority. We've highlighted here collectively and from the leaders at the table here, we all understand that you can't build an RSOF formation without the right people. And then developing that human capital and making them the best possible soldier, individual, citizen that they can be and a special operator. Winning matters, right? 
that's still really important. And so God forbid we have to go fight our adversaries. It's important that we win when we do. Uh, and I fundamentally b- believe that the way we will win is by preparing the environment and the force that will prepare that environment more than any other force out there is our RSOF and joint soft formations out there. It's incumbent upon us to, to lay that groundwork here and make sure that that world-class capability gets to, to the operational force. And then, that, you know, the third priority here from General Fenton is transform. And so it speaks to the need to constantly evaluate and assess your operational environment and realize that if you're not adapting to the changing operational environment, the technological changes, the human changes, the capabilities of our adversaries, if you're not thinking one step ahead of that environment to make sure that we're properly postured to respond as an institution, then we're missing an opportunity. And so I think, you know, if we, we fundamentally have to, to look at a transformation opportunity here. And granted, we're looking at 2030, right? We're not going to snap our fingers and wake up tomorrow and this vision will come to fruition. It's going to take some hard rowing long after the three of us are gone. Uh, the continuity of effort will matter. We are starting to create some momentum here that I hope is irreversible because this transformation is, uh, is necessary. Thanks. Yeah, so you know, we talked a lot about uh, you know twenty thirty force structure and kind of that future environment, and then we're all operationally focused, you know, individuals in RSOF. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about just people and, and recruiting. You know, at the end of the day, we, we have to be aware of that force structure twenty thirty in, in the operational environment. You know, the Army is a people business, and, and warfare is a human endeavor. You know, there's some recruiting challenges out there, but uh, I'd like to just say for for everybody listening. Every one of us knows somebody that is fit for, for service and would be a, a great teammate, whether in RSOFT or throughout any one of the branches of service. And um, I think there's a lot of just misunderstanding or, or, or just lack of understanding of what you know, military service can, can do for you as an individual. So I think of a you know, 18-year-old, Lee Strong, goes in, sees a recruiter, and I joined the Army. And I didn't know a whole lot about the Army. But looking back now, 25 years later, is the Army provided me a ton of opportunity. The Army provided me a ton of structure and, uh, and quite frankly, a good basis of values that have turned me into the person I am today. It's done a ton for me in a personal level, for my family, and, uh, and you know, it's why I continue to serve, right? And uh, you have met my best friends and have made relationships that will carry long beyond my military service. And also along that way, it's given me an education and, and a whole bunch of skills and trades that I can apply on the other side of this service, right? You know, for everybody out there, Yo, make sure you're sharing your story and recruiting, right? Because um, not for the sake of filling our ranks, for the sake of service is great, whether you do a career or a, you know, a one-term enlistment, right? Because I think it's, it is a missed opportunity to not spend you know, one enlistment here and see what the military service has to provide. Now to the RSOF side of that, yeah, we, we also need to recruit for, for RSOF. That requires an assessment selection. So how to best prepare yourself for assessment and selection of, of any one of them, whichever one you choose, whether it's one of our pathways or, or you're going down to option 40 to RASP, right? Uh, or maybe you want to be an NSW candidate and go to BUDS. You know, it comes down to intrinsic motivation and purpose. You absolutely need to physically, mentally, emotionally prepare yourself for that rigor, that 24-day job interview that we call assessment and selection, right? But it really comes down to you can be the most physically fit person on the planet and you can have all the aptitudes and things that you think we get a candidate selected, but if you don't have an intrinsic motivation and a, and a sense of purpose for being there, you're not going to figure that out on day two of team week. So the best thing you can do is one, be physically prepared, but more importantly, you, you need to know why you're, why you're doing this in the first place. And that, that why, that intrinsic motivation and purpose 
is what is going to uh, demonstrate our soft attribute of uh, perseverance, right, and get you through those hard days and ultimately send you on a pathway to one of the most rewarding careers we have on the planet, which is to be a member of this soft team. I'm inspired by that right now. I, I yeah. give the goosebumps right there. Go back to Chemical, Bobby. Ooh. It's, waiting, it's waiting for you. Yeah. Let me build on that assessment and selection program that we run here, which I think is top-notch, and it, it is world-class. And we've communicated this to the Army, and I just I, I want to get this out to the, to the audience because I think it's really important. I laid this out to our fellow COE commanding generals at Fort Leavenworth. Our charter to the Army— I believe this fundamentally is if you come to our assessment and selection program, statistically, the majority of those that show up will not be selected. But one thing I can guarantee is they will walk away a better leader and a better soldier because they will have put themselves through a special assessment and selection program and they will walk away with an understanding of their developmental needs as a leader. And we owe that to them, right? And our cadre down at selection right now are embracing this concept. And so every soldier that comes to our assessment and selection program, first of all, thank you for coming. You're going to get put through, you know, some of the most uh, rigorous training and assessment and evaluation programs the military has to offer. And if you make it, awesome. If you don't make it, you're still awesome because you tried, right? And you're going to go back to your formation and you're going to be that much better, right? So that, uh, that career-long assessment approach is something we've embraced here, and I think it's, uh, it's important that everybody understand that. We're committed to that. Thanks. Hey, gentlemen, thank you so very much for spending time with us with this episode of Pineland Underground. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here in the podcast studio. We're excited about this season coming up. We've got some great new hosts coming on board as well as part of our team. But truly, thanks for being part of this. We look forward to uh, what's coming up in the future. Thank you, gentlemen. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today in Pineland Underground, the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and Schools official podcast. 